2: Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. I'm your host, Roberto Matza, and today it's with great pleasure that my guest is Nadi Abusada. Nadi is an architect, urbanist, a historian, and is currently an Aga Khan postdoctoral fellow at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, uh, also known as MIT, which is probably easier. Nadi's PhD, uh, Building Urban Palestine, Jaffa and Nablus, 1860 and 1940, has been recently completed at the University of Cambridge, and he basically examined the history of urban planning and urban governance in late Ottoman and Mandate Palestine. Nadi published a number of articles, uh, some of them also in the Jerusalem Quarterly, which we're going to talk about, uh, particularly focusing on the Arab exhibition in the 1930s, and recently a very fascinating article about um, archaeology as essentially, uh, you know, what is under Jerusalem. Nadi uh, is also the co-founder of Arab Urbanism, a global network dedicated to historical and contemporary urban issues in the Arab region. And as I mentioned earlier, his writings have been featured in a number of international publications, including the Architectural Review, the International Journal of Islamic Architecture, and of course, the Jerusalem Quarterly. First of all, Nadi, welcome. Thank you, Roberto.
1: Thanks for having me.
2: So, Nadi, you are now in the US. You did your PhD in uh, in the UK. But obviously, the most important question, and the first one that I ask over time is, what is your Jerusalem? What is your relationship with the city?
1: Good question. Well, I, I was born in Jerusalem, actually. Uh, but um, I hold the West Bank ID. Um, so now to go to Jerusalem, I have to apply to permits. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I've been visiting the city quite frequently, or at least I try every time I'm back in Palestine. Um, now I'm back in Ramallah and um, I'm yet to visit
2: Jerusalem, hopefully sometime next week. Well, that's great. And hopefully, inshallah, you'll be able to visit. Uh I'm interested in understanding how you got to work in um, sort of the urban studies and the urban aspects of Jerusalem, particularly, since you're merging different uh, approaches, architecture, urbanism, and, of course, history. How did you develop that, uh, that particular interest about Jerusalem?
1: Right. So so I'm an architect by, by training. So that's, that's my vantage point into history. Um, and yeah, I guess for me as, you know, a Palestinian architect, I'm, before trying to intervene in the built environment, I guess it was essential for me to try and understand the many layers of intervention that preceded myself uh, and my generation of architects. Um, so it started with a, you know, with starting a master's at Cambridge back in 2016 where, yeah, I started to really explore some of the themes around urban planning and governance uh, and how that influences the built environment. And then it's because, you know, master's programs are too short, uh, it had to extend into a PhD. And then I ended up doing four more years of research into more urban history from an architectural lens. Um, So really, almost accidental by start but then it really became the the main thing i'm working on right now
2: i would say that architects in general in my mind are those who are planning but also very some some way fantasizing about buildings and how cities should look like so they imagine the future building but you wrote a brilliant chapter in a, in a very interesting volume um so you talked about uh, urban encounters or Imaging the City in Mandate Palestine, which is more about the idea, like sort of the image themselves. And and the volume is is a collection of uh, very, very interesting chapters published by uh, uh, Karen Sanchez and Sarizan Anariri, who has been also a guest of of the podcast, Imaging and Imagining Palestine. So I wanna start from there because I I thought that it's very interesting about this idea of imaging uh, Palestine during the British Mandate, and I was wondering how was imaged, I can't even say the word, I don't know exactly how it, the, the word would be, Palestine under the British.
1: Yeah, I guess the the main point of that article was to try and rethink about how how do we write the history of photography in Mandate Palestine, and precisely because I come from an architectural background, I was mostly interested in photography that's related to cities and the built environment. And one of the main things I was trying to say is that photography was not just an um, an instrument of representation of the built environment. It wasn't just an exterior um, thing to the built environment itself. It was actually a tool that colonial architects and planners used to intervene within these fabrics. So I was really trying to focus on how different architects and planners, um, one of them is Charles Ashby, for instance, uh, who was a chief planner in Jerusalem right after uh, World War I. Uh, And he was sketching his proposed panoramas of the city over uh, photographs of the city, panoramic photographs of the city. So it's really, architecture, uh, sorry, photography for him is a way of seeing the city. And of course they understood that way of seeing as a more neutral way of seeing the city. Um, And then they would impose and sketch over these photographs. So it's really trying to understand the development of these cities through, uh, through photography and the different colonial lenses that informs how photography is used.
2: You talked about Charles Ashby, that is probably one of the most prominent British planners in Palestine, and certainly in Jerusalem, uh, ever since the end of World War I, and um, by the time the British took over. I was wondering, what is your assessment as an architect of the work of uh, the like of Charles Ashby and others that have been employed by the British, particularly in the early British mandate period, but perhaps also looking at the the long duration of the 30 years of British rule.
1: Right, I mean, Ashby was one of multiple uh, British colonial architects hired during the uh, uh, mandate period. And actually he was one of the first to take over the planning of uh, of Jerusalem after the Macklin plan. Um, and yeah, I mean, Ashby comes from that arts and crafts movement, which we know the history of too well when it comes to Britain, but we know very little of when it comes to how it was also a global movement or a movement that influenced global um, experimentations and architecture and planning. And of course that intersects with the colonial history and that particularly in the case of Ashby. Ashby was you know, a particularly interesting figure. He, in, he has this um, notebook uh, where he comments uh, on his duration in Palestine. It's called the Palestine Notebook. It's in his personal collection, which is um, at King's College um, in Cambridge, and it's really it's really fascinating because he's he's a romantic uh, socialist in a, in some way he's trying to um, create an idyllic understanding of Jerusalem, but at the same time he has the very practical task of actually proposing a plan for the city, um, and of course he's the the main engine behind the pro-Jerusalem society, which uh, Ronald Storrs established right after uh, the military occupation of Jerusalem. Um, So he proposes quite a few um, plans for the old city, and this is where it also intersects with with the whole photography idea, because he's looking at the old city from the outside. He's not so much interested, although he, he documents a lot of the architectural fabric of the old city, but he's really interested in how you approach the city. And how, what you see in Jerusalem immediately after arriving to the city, uh, he's really yeah that's that's a big deal for him. So on one of the photographs, for instance, where you see the Ottoman clock tower, uh, which was built um, in the era of Sultan Abdel Hamid II on his 25th anniversary, um, or the 25th anniversary of his reign, um, and then then he draws a circle around that uh, clock tower and. Uh, an arrow and then he writes, this has to go. Uh, So he's this kind of planner that is trying to preserve a certain idea of what Jerusalem is. Uh, Mostly exterior, he doesn't mind demolishing shops, specifically Palestinian shops that were uh, dotting the belt right right, um, around the old city. And then instead he proposes to turn it into a green space. Um, and so, yeah, he's really interested in perspectival views, uh, panoramic views of the city, uh, not so much in local reactions to uh, to these plans,
2: as was common for colonial architects more generally. One of a general statement about Charles Aspie and that period is that the British were trying to make, particularly the old city, as some sort of an open-air uh, museum. But, but I'm curious about this idea of preservation because that's, you know, sort of this word uh, that is highly used to define the, the work of his architects. But my, my feeling has always been that, that there was a sort of a preservation according to their own ideas and not necessarily about uh, the city itself. So I was wondering what, what is your take on this idea of uh, preservation?
1: Yeah, I guess the question of preservation always raises another question, which is what ought to be preserved, and what ought not to be preserved. So clearly, when someone like like Ashby throws a circle around an auto clock tower, he excludes that from his narrative of preservation. Um, So that does not fit within the history that ought to be uh, studied that ought to be kept for future generations. So I guess that's, that's my main issue, of course, uh, with preservation in general i think that applies to many other contexts besides jerusalem but particularly when we look at the colonial experience like that of jerusalem it becomes um, very partial um so yeah i guess
2: (laughs) well the story goes that even david ben-gurion at some point made the comment that the uh, the the walls of jerusalem should have been demolished because they were not jewish enough Uh, at least understanding that effectively those walls for the most part had been built by the Ottomans um, obviously on the basis of previous wars but still they didn't represent uh, uh, this idea of the preservation of an ancient past um, yeah. but certainly the clock tower uh, mm-hmm. it, it's a very interesting example of uh, sort of demolishing uh, symbols uh, but not only of the Ottoman past but also of modernity which people were very much attached to uh, in, in favor of preserving uh. A past that was uh, ideal in the, in the minds of the British. I just want to ask you something about the legacy. Today, visiting Jerusalem is quite an experience because obviously the city is mushroomed and is giant. Um, and, and I use the word uh, cementification in another interview because that's essentially what you experience driving into the city is like cement everywhere. Right. Uh, so there is that part. But when you focus on the the old city and the surrounding, I I was wondering to what extent we can still see and perceive a British legacy in terms of uh, uh, plans and architecture.
1: Right, I mean, one of the things that's important to distinguish when it comes to architecture is how we um, periodize architecture, right? Because not everything that was built during the British mandate was necessarily a British legacy. And um, that was really, the main point of my dissertation when i talk about late ottoman and the british period is that there are these artifacts of empire whether it's the late ottoman or the british that are really you know significant monumental etc but when it comes to most construction that takes place during these periods it's usually you know presidential architecture because this is a period of great expansion of cities suburbs are being built um, cities going outside of their historical walls for the first time. So it, when it comes to the Mandate period, of course, the, the mushrooming outside the, the historic city. I mean, the British have influenced that in terms of planning roads, etc. But as an effort, it was mostly either Palestinian or, of course, uh, the Jewish colonies, which was, were built from the late 19th century onward. Um, there are a few monumental constructions, especially on Yaffa Road uh, from the 1930s and 40s, like uh, the post office, like a few other, the Barclays Bank, etc. cetera. Um, and of course, there's this whole green belt uh, which surrounds the old city, which is still there more or less uh, today. Um, and of course, Jerusalem is where there's most British investment in matters of urban planning along with Haifa, but when it comes to other cities throughout Palestine, you see that less and less there, is, uh, there are really remainders of British colonial r- rule, at least in terms of architecture. In terms of planning, the, you know, uh, the widening of roads, etc., that still has some effect, um, especially uh, the planning that took place during the, the 1936 revolt. But that's a whole another topic that we can get into. Mm-hmm.
2: I was interested in an exhibition that took place in Istanbul, and unfortunately due to COVID I couldn't go, but I saw a few mm-hmm. sort of short videos shot online where they presented uh, uh, the Ottoman heritage uh, mm-hmm. in Jerusalem. And, and, and I felt that it was an attempt to sort of appropriate uh, that past. But again, this was like my reading, even uh, considering that effectively, uh, quite interestingly, there was no attempt to move forward from the late Ottoman era and to see how buildings, in particular hospitals and other institutions that had been built uh, during the Ottoman period, uh, developed in later times. And, and I was wondering if you had a chance to actually get acquainted with this exhibition or what, what they did and what was the attempt.
1: I'm not familiar with the exhibition, but I have things to say about what you mentioned in terms of the appropriation of history and of the architectural legacy, but also his history in general. Um, I think, I think there has, well, of course, the Ottoman history has seen quite a lot of revision in the past, I don't know, 30 years or so, probably even more. Um, around the, the, the whole question of Ottoman modernity and writing the history of Ottoman modernity um, against that whole decline thesis, which is now very retired and all that. Um, but I think there's a limitation to what Ottomanists um, or how Ottomanists still frame the Ottoman legacy in the Arab provinces, including a place like Palestine. Because while it is true that um, the late Ottoman period was a period of immense uh, modernization, construction, development, um, that the direct involvement of Ottoman officials was not always there in matters of urban planning and and construction. Um, And actually local municipal councils, which were within, which were operating within uh, the Ottoman, Structure, but still had some level of autonomy and were uh, formed by local representatives and local populations. They had a, a major role in, in leading uh, many of these construction and local populations financed them. So that's so that aspect has to be looked at when we look at a building and then asking is this an Ottoman building or is it an Ottoman era building right. Uh, and then there's another, the other question, which is the point you mentioned, that a lot of these buildings, we can't, it's, it's more of a historiographical point, which is that we can't simply stop at World War One. It is true that the world was ruptured in World War I, but that's not the end of history. Many of these artifacts have much longer lives, right? Uh, so asking what happens to, Uh, to these buildings, to this legacy of late Ottoman modernization into the British Mandate period, I think is a question that's worthwhile asking. Um, And and you'll see that a lot of the buildings have been reappropriated. A lot of them became old centers. So a a lot of the new centers that sprung as new urban centers in the late Ottoman period became old centers, and then new centers sprung in the 1930s and 40s. Um, So this is a period of really rapid change, and to really understand that kind of change, we have to look across these different periodizations uh, that political historians like to stick to.
2: Before moving to uh, another aspect uh, of your work, I'm curious about your take on uh, recent attempts to uh, digitally reconstruct uh, buildings or entire neighborhoods. Um, around Jerusalem. There are different kinds of projects. Uh, Some of of them have been discussed here on the show. Um, Jerusalem, we we are here, which basically was the idea to use uh, Google Maps technology and place Palestinian houses in um, some neighborhoods of Jerusalem. Um, Others that are attempting to rebuild, for instance, the Mugrabi Quarter. But I, I was wondering you know you're an architect, you're dealing with real buildings. And so how do you see this idea of using virtual technology in order to actually reconstruct the past or to preserve uh, heritage?
1: Thanks for that, Roberto. yeah, I mean it's a, it's a question that's also quite um, relevant to architectural history more broadly than the case of Jerusalem. Um, and of course, technology is a, including uh, digital reconstructions, is a double-edged sword. Always, um, of course, it's very useful to reconstruct certain things uh, that aren't accessible to us today, right? Uh, to analyze them and to gain a better understanding of them. But of course, that comes with major limitations when. It, when we're dealing with a place that has been lost, and maybe we have to come to terms with the idea that it has been lost, um, and then write about that or 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 deal with that uh, legacy of erasure, because it's erased for a reason as well. Um, I think it's a it's a it's a complex question, and I don't think I have a, a particularly straightforward answer to it, uh, but yeah, questions of how do we deal with the, with the digital uh, world and especially within historical uh, research is, is quite a tricky one. I think one research project that I particularly like, it's not architectural, but it's more geographical, is something like Visualizing Palestine, where you know there are these colonial maps that once you patch together, start to give you a better sense of what was there before. And by making them digitally available, then they become accessible to people who can't either access these archives or access these locations and places. So that is an advantage of digital uh, research and making things accessible accessible digitally. But I think architectural research still has to be uh, site-based because once you're in the site, you see things very differently. You see forces of, the present, but also forces of history uh, that are otherwise obscured in virtual reality.
0: Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to
2: monday.com. I, I guess and I suppose that, yeah, virtual reality is fascinating because it gives us the chance to see what is no longer. But on the other hand, there are all sorts of other issues and, uh, and also the choice. What is that we want to see in that virtual reality? Um, but uh, as you mentioned, I too am very fascinated. There are some, some projects I've been following and I'm curious to see how they're gonna see uh, the light of day at some point and how they would be gonna you know, uh, be available. Uh, so instead of uh, insisting in uh, uh, sort of fake reconstructions or appropriating the land, but just to focus on, on the virtual. But I understand there's also a lot of political implications connected to that. So I want to move to another area of your work. Um, which I had the pleasure to read uh, several times. And and I know that also is some sort of shared with another scholar in in different ways. So in 2019, you published a very interesting article uh, related to, uh, to, on the Jerusalem Quarterly, I must say, related to the Arab exhibition. So exhibitions were a feature of that time. Uh, They were very common throughout the world, certainly throughout Europe. Uh, A lot of countries used uh, a space to exhibit their products, their arts, their, um, you know, several features of that particular people. And so Palestinians did the same in 1931 and that exhibition took place in Jerusalem. So I was wondering if you can tell us uh, more about the art exhibition, who were the people involved and how did it work and whether it was successful or not? Right, Um, so basically, I mean, writing
1: about the Arab Jerusalem in itself was quite a journey because I actually stumbled upon many references to the Arab exhibition as I was working on something else entirely. Uh, So this was a complete accident in terms of that wasn't the intention. It wasn't to write about the Arab exhibition, but it kept coming up in memoirs, um, in newspapers, in narratives from the 1930s. And then when I tried to actually search for anything about the Arab exhibition, I realized that this episode in the history of Mandate Palestine has not been written, which, which really became the reason for me to, to write this piece. Uh, but the first reference I came across was um, by Isa Al-Isa, who was the founder of the well-known uh, newspaper, Palestine, which was based in Yaffa. It started in the late Ottoman period and proceeded into the Mandate period. And then he writes in his memoirs, which are still unpublished, uh, that in 1931, he goes and visits the colonial exhibition in Paris. Uh, And that exhibition is well known. Palestine is represented at that exhibition, but it's mostly a British Zionist representation. It's not a Palestinian representation. And then immediately upon his return to Palestine, he starts raising the subject of of a Palestinian, similar Palestinian exhibition um, to be led by Palestinians to take place uh, originally in Yaffa, which is the city he's from. And then uh, he starts writing because he owns a newspaper. So he has a major uh, site where he could be heard and then Um, to start a really public debate uh, around the subject. And then the idea grows, some people join in uh, on it. In 1932, he goes to Baghdad and visits the Iraqi agri agri and industrial exhibition there. So this is, the 1930s is really a time when Palestinians are trying to establish themselves within a broader Arab geography, both politically and culturally, but also more importantly, Economically, which is really the, the main spirit behind this exhibition. Um, and, and he succeeds. So he's heard around Palestine, he starts a company, then the company uh, establishes a board of directors, um, and they start selling shares to people from all around Palestine. So they start going on journeys to Gaza, to Ramleh, to to the north, to Nazareth, all all around Palestine trying to sell shares. And in fact, in 1933, the Arab exhibition does take place. It opens its doors uh, in Jerusalem, not on Yaffa. And that's a main issue of contention that appears in the board of directors' uh, meeting minutes. Um, And it takes place in the Palace Hotel in Jerusalem, which is now the Augusta, uh, the Waldorf Astoria uh, Hotel, um, which at the time was built by the Supreme Muslim Council. And it was actually so successful that in 1934, they decided to uh, do a second exhibition. And one of the main things about writing um, about the Arab exhibition was to try and see this history uh, of Palestinians acting on their own terms. Um, one of the compelling things would have been to read it against the um, 1931 exhibition, which took place in Tel Aviv, the Levant Fair, which they do mention in newspapers, They're, they're posing this Arab exhibition as an adversary to the Zionist Fair, but it's about much more than that. And that's what I tried to give justice to, which is this Arab regional connection behind something like the Arab exhibition, bringing in trades and crafts from, Damascus from um, all the way uh, from North Africa to Hejaz. And that's really the the spirit in which it was um, created.
2: Eventually the Arab exhibition lasted only uh, a few years. Was it because of the um, eventually the the, the outbreak of the Arab revolt or there are other reasons like uh, perhaps competition, internal competitions um, particularly within the Palestinian environment, that brought uh, the Arab exhibition to a stop?
1: Um, that's a good question. Yeah, it, it, so they did do the second exhibition. A third exhibition was supposed to take place. It was supposed to take place in Jaffa, uh, but it did not. And I think the main hurdle was actually financial. Um, and that problem was also there in the first and second exhibition, because they were trying to really finance this ambitious projects, but half of those who bought shares didn't pay what they had to pay. Um, but then they decided that they needed to do it anyway for the first and second time. Uh, but it wasn't very sustainable for a third time. Now, of course, this question of finances is, is also very political, because the British Colonial Administration actually refused to finance the Arab exhibition on the grounds that it did not include um, the Jewish population. Um, so originally, when it was supposed to happen in Yaffa, the Yafa municipality was in on the project and was about to start financing the project. But then the British sort of ordered against it. Um, So it's quite political, and then of course, with the outbreak of the 1936 revolt, there were bigger concerns um, to be preoccupied with than the exhibition.
2: I personally found some records where uh, Mussolini was uh, trying to channel some money into the Arab exhibition, but he was actually supporting uh, uh, also the Zionist movement, particularly Jabotinsky at the same time. These ideas were mainly to uh, sort of uh, fight the British in in Palestine and to gain some sort of an Italian stronger presence in in the region. Uh, But I guess that money was obviously not not enough, which I'm not surprised to be honest. Uh, I was wondering in terms of uh, the exhibition itself, uh, what kind of objects, what kind of materials, what kind of ideas were exhibited and exchanged uh, in these two uh, uh, events?
1: That's a great question. We are lucky enough to have two exhibition guidebooks uh, for the 1933 and the 1934 exhibitions with a full list of the participating um, either companies or individuals. And because it was an agro-industrial exhibition, that was the main main goal behind the, the exhibition. It was mostly either light, uh, light crafts uh, or industrial products uh, that were packaged and prepared for, uh, for sale. Uh, so things like soap, like jewelry, um, really a wide range of objects uh, that one could probably still find today when you go into the bazaars of, uh, of many Arab cities. Uh, but mostly crafts and, and light industries, not heavy industries um, that were exhibited, yeah.
2: If you think about uh, a potential legacy of this Arab exhibition, do you think was it uh, understood, successful in terms of like uh, connecting Palestine with the surrounding regions and also particularly competing uh, with, with the Zionist uh, products? Uh, in Palestine. So this idea of a competition between the two markets, which essentially the the British developed, uh, instead of bringing them together, creating two parallel systems.
1: It's much harder to speak of success uh, and failure uh, than to speak of what was intended or what was attempted at least. I think in terms of success, um, things diverted uh, soon thereafter with the 36th revolt, and things were not looking good by the start of World War II in Palestine for the Palestinians, um, and of course then 48. So, so yeah, to speak of success is difficult, uh, but I think the, the more important point is what was attempted, and it was really this attempt to bridge what was broken in World War I, Uh, these ties that could no longer be justified in administrative and geopolitical terms, but were still there sentimentally uh, and socially and culturally. Uh, But they were trying to solidify them economically as well, to create a parallel economy outside the the colonial economy uh, that ruled um, greater Syria, but also the, the region more broadly. Um, so that was the attempt. It's hard to call it successful. I don't think it was very successful. Uh, the fact that there wasn't a third exhibition is also another indicator that it was not very successful. Uh, but it attempted at something. It, it was a vision of some sort. And I think that's what's worth exploring when we explore histories like this because, um, so not to superimpose that, deterministic eventual failure, which happened, and it's hard to uh, contest, um, but what was envisioned, um, yeah.
2: It's a fascinating story, and, and gladly, uh, I must say that, uh, like, like you mentioned, I saw the references in some diaries and memoirs, but I, I never really fully understood what it exactly was until I came across your work and um, uh, another colleague of yours um and, and i found it interesting that you have this like uh, kind of like people coming together and and to me as you just said try to reconnect with essentially the pre-british uh, border so with the ottoman past where uh, regions existed but there were no real borders and people uh, not, not just businessmen but people could connect uh, in a different way so uh, essentially, those were not real borders other than administrative ones, and so uh, I found it interesting that the, that the Arab exhibition was really that attempt to rejoin and reconnect uh, uh, regions that had been separated after World War One. I. I want to bring you, for the last part of the interview, to something more recent that you wrote uh, uh, in 2021 an article for the uh, uh, architecture review, which as far as I understand, also received a uh, lot of praises and probably one of the most downloaded articles of the review itself. Uh, under Jerusalem, Israel's subterranean expansion. And this to me is, is a fascinating topic because for all the people visiting Jerusalem, there is a, an overground Jerusalem that we all can see, but we also, are aware that there is an underground Jerusalem and to an extent that is visible uh, given previous excavation, uh, whether it's under uh, the Western Wall, uh, which is probably one of the most famous one, Uh, obviously the excavation just outside the the walls of the so-called Ir David, I mean, obviously we we know that historically there was a seat of David there, but obviously are much more politics connected to that kind of uh, excavations, but also excavations around seal one, Uh, other parts of uh, Sheikh Jarrah and other Palestinian neighborhoods in East Jerusalem. So your argument is that archeology span is essentially used as a justification for subterranean colonial expansion. And I I found this intriguing and fascinating because there is very little talk about this further development. You know, it's easier to talk uh, the overground city, obviously the question of Sheikh Jarrah, but there is a second battle and that battle is fought underground.
1: Uh, yeah, so so this article was part of an issue that was dedicated to the question of the underground uh, that the Architectural Review published in 2021, um, and it's really about exploring not only the things that we see, and you know when it comes to architecture, usually we look at what is visible, uh, but to really look at the foundations of. Artifacts of buildings, of cities, right? Uh, and to really dig deeper into the terrains that hold up these cities. And of course, when it comes to Jerusalem, we have a longer history um, of interest in the underground of Jerusalem. Um, I I mean in this article it's it's a short article but it's it's also a, a survey of some of these uh, interests and it goes all the way back from medieval depictions of underground Jerusalem as you know the chamber leading um, into the uh, lowest levels of hell um, into a more contemporary uh, and current uh politics around digging in Jerusalem and but the the modern legacy of interests of colonial interest in underground Jerusalem starts with the British but before the British period so it starts with British colonial interests in Palestine already in the late Ottoman period in the late 19th century and it's only until later that really Jewish excavators join uh, these efforts. it's only until 19 um, 1911 or 1912 if I'm correct that lay the foundations for what later becomes um, the um, uh, the israel uh, what is Israel archaeological um, I have to yeah authority yeah, something like that. Um, but it's something similar to the Palestine exploration fund, but that's Zionist right. Um, but yeah, so it's really the Palestine Exploration Funds that Fund that starts uh, these underground diggings. Charles Warren, who's a British archeologist, comes to Palestine. He's a big fan of the Zionist movement, but he's also quite um, dedicated to digging under to Jerusalem to the extent that he's willing to um, to really go very deep into the ground, risk his own life, and the life of staff uh, that he hired. And then uh, he, this underground Jerusalem becomes a fascination in the late 19th century. Uh, tourists start to come specifically to Jerusalem to go into these tours that Warren himself is leading into the underground. Um, a lot of people are interested in it. Um, there's also an exhibition that's held in London called Under Jerusalem. Um, of paintings of underground Jerusalem. So it really starts with that legacy. But of course it extends to the creation of Israel in 1948 and more importantly after 67 and the occupation of uh, East Jerusalem when when the digging really starts to take in on new life. Um, And of course that coincides with the demolition of the Mughrabi quarter Uh, which really leaves room for more uh, digging uh, near Haram Sharif. And of course, the story today is well known. You know, I mean, you go to Jerusalem today and there are still tours of underground uh, Jerusalem. There's a lot of projects for building cemeteries, for building, essentially, it's an entire city under uh, the city today. Um, and that, of course, is not innocent and is very politicized because usually to be living in Silwan or Sheikh Jarrah or in the old city today, if you're a Palestinian, one of your biggest fears would be to someone for someone to knock on your door and tell you, uh, we're here to um, look into what's under your house. Um, so the matter is really sensitive and really political. Um, so, but it it does have legacies that go back to the 19th century. If we're talking about the modern colonial legacy of of
2: digging in Jerusalem. Digging is uh, certainly connected also with the the other interesting aspect of digging, which is bulldozing. Uh, And I found it like, uh, you know, fascinating from one perspective to, to look at these terms, but also extremely problematic because this is real. In order to dig in Jerusalem, you have to bulldoze the actual buildings that stand over uh, that area. And, and that brings me to uh, to one question related to your work as an architect. To what extent you think architecture and your role as an architect may be influential in... Uh, not suggesting future solutions for Jerusalem, but contributing to possible solutions? I know it's a $1 million question.
1: <laughs> it certainly is.
2: Um,
1: I think architects are generally, the drive of architects is to build. Uh, and in a place like Jerusalem, a lot of the building comes at the cost of destruction because today there's little room to build right, when, when in a dense, very dense city like Jerusalem. Um, so to build, you have to destroy it. And that, that duality is never, I mean, it's almost inescapable today. I think one of the things that architects should do is to try and fight this urge sometimes, uh, that before building or destroying, to pause and try to understand. Uh, what actually happened? How do we, How did we get here? What is this built fabric? What are the legacies that we still live today? How does it affect the lives of the residents of these cities? I think these questions are essential for architects to ask because, you know, I mean, it, none of this, none of this construction or destruction comes without a cost. And I'm not saying that architects should just be pessimistic or abandon their roles. I think there's a big role to be played uh, by architects and by planners. But I think one of the things that we need to learn is to be a little humble and to ask questions before we actually pose our own interventions into built environments and into the lived environments of entire populations. And I think that's been a long-standing problem when it comes to Palestine, that architects have been too arrogant to ask these questions or take into consideration uh, the interests of uh, local Palestinian inhabitants.
2: I guess people follow their passion and sometimes they don't really realize the consequences, but I I asked that question because I noticed that there's been a growing movement of architects, particularly in Israel and Israeli architects, they have become more and more engaged um, in civil society and trying to bring civil society to rethink this drive. Given the fact that, obviously, Israel is this country where buildings are built every day and they emerge rather quickly, and, and the same can be said up to a point in Palestine. Obviously, there are different restrictions, but When you drive now from Jerusalem to Ramallah is this constant line of building. So I think it's like it's a general trend uh, building. I have one last question and very much is about what what I didn't ask and you want to talk about. Is there anything uh, since the interview took one specific direction that I didn't ask but you want to uh, talk about?
1: Not particularly, but I think, I mean, regarding your your last point, I think um, as Palestinian architects, we really operate from a very different vantage point uh, than those of Israeli architects. I mean, we we see Israeli architects as part of the problem, and as progressive as one tries to be within you know, a colonial structure, I don't think that there's much that architects can do. Uh, I think the issue is extremely political first and foremost, and then architecture is a subset of that. Uh, but there are initiatives uh, a lot among Palestinian architects to try and rethink our own heritage, including Jerusalem, but also Palestine more, more broadly. Um, and I think, yeah, it's time for us to try and think collectively about these things and critically. Um, and one of the starting points is to st- start and look at uh, our own architectural heritage, but also at the architectural present as also a, a key problem to take into consideration before, uh, before essentially going on as professionals and proceeding with our daily lives as usual. Um, so yeah, I think that, that's, that's
2: just my comment on, on that last bit. This was Nadia Busada currently a Aga Khan postdoctoral fellow at Islamic Architecture and Urbanism at uh, MIT, author of several articles. And I just want to mention, too, the Arab Exhibition, 1931-34, published by the Jerusalem Quarterly and Under Jerusalem, recently published in the Architecture, um, Architectural Review, just to be more precise. Nadi, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Roberto. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please share it with others on social media or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Jerusalem Unplugged. Thanks, and I'll see you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince.